Now, for those of you who don't know, the reason I'm sitting down to preach is I tore my calf muscle a little while ago and I can't stand for long periods of time. But there's something rather nice about preaching seated, I've got to say. It's sort of, I'm not sure what it's like on the other side of the equation, but for me it's sort of like the formality's taken a step down. It's like having a chat with people rather than you're sort of talking at them. So I may keep doing this, I don't know. We'll see. I, um, I'm going to read you the same scripture that I read to you last week. It's from Luke 23, 26 onwards. So if you've got a, a Bible or a phone and you want to follow along, that's fine. But it goes like this. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. People stood watching and the rulers even stared at him. They said, well, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the King of the Jews. It's a familiar story which describes a familiar scene, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I talked last week about how the second thing that he said on the cross was to the thief, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now the sharp-eyed among you will notice that this wasn't the first thing that he said. The first thing that he said was a prayer, a prayer to God the Father. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's a truly extraordinary prayer in those circumstances. Now, if you just casually pick up the Gospels, the four books that describe Jesus' life, and read them through, there's a number of things that will probably strike you. The first is that Jesus is a bit coy about identifying his true self, his messiahship, his divinity. He's very clearly, it's very clear that his ministry is not a public relations campaign. 
Second, his message is mostly proclaiming the imminent kingdom of God. Third, he spends most of his time with his inner circle of three, then a little bit less with the twelve, a little bit with the seventy, and then a lot less with the crowd. The crowd get the least revelation, the three, Peter, James and John, get the most. Now generally, and or finally, and importantly for our purposes, he's forever ducking away to commune with his father to pray by himself. Now generally we don't know the content of those prayers because he's alone and no one's there. But at the cross, we know from John's gospel that Mary, his mother, was there. And so I guess heard this prayer. And she's one of Luke's primary sources for his gospel. There are only two other recorded prayers by him in his gospel. One in Luke 10, when he gives thanks to God after the 70 have come back from their short-term mission trip around the villages. Then in Gethsemane, with Peter, James and John that in a circle, when he's in deep anguish, the, the, the shadow of the cross is starting to get more and more intense and envelop him, and he implores the Father to take this cup away from him, this experience, but not his will, but God's will be done. Jesus, the, the fully divine and fully one of us, is here praying to his Father as he is dying. And it gives us this window into God's inner world, the communion between Father and Son at their most difficult point. Now John's high priestly prayer in John 14 to 17 gives us an insight into their relationship. But not at this most critical juncture. Jesus is not leaving the cross alive. And he knows that. This is it. And consider the context. Of all the people who followed him so faithfully for so long, only four are still there. John, Mary's mum, Mary Magdalene, and another Mary. Only these four were willing to risk being seen to know him. The rest are scattered and hiding. Now there are two other significant groups here. The Roman soldiers, hey, they've done this many times. So they're quite indifferent to him. To them, this is just one more troublemaker getting his just desserts. Life was cheap in the ancient Near East as it is in much of the two-thirds world now. They just didn't give a toss. They were following orders. Now when Spartacus, anyone seen the movie? Charlton Heston, I think it was, back in the day. Spartacus led his rebellion on Rome a century before. They say that 5,000 of his followers were crucified. All along the Appian Way to Rome, every 30 metres or so, there was another person dying. So three criminals being executed one quiet Friday in the obscure province of Judea was no big deal to them. No great drama at all. 
The other group there, though, are the great and the good from the temple establishment, the priests and the lawyers and members of the governing Sanhedrin and maybe the temple traders whose business Jesus had been threatening. Things happen so quickly. If you think that he was arrested late on Thursday night and here on Friday morning, he's already had several trials, he's been to the Sanhedrin and he's on his cross. I suspect that most of the people who were waving to him in Palm Sunday a week before, they probably don't even know that this is happening. Not many of the common people would have been present. And I imagine that the great and the good just standing and watching, smiling or sneering in satisfaction that this disruptor, this man would finally be silenced forever. And later they got stuck into him, mocking him and putting him down. For a faithful Jew, the cross is a supreme place of shame in a society that is based on honour and shame. He's close to naked. Over time, at least, probably incontinent, so ritually unclean. And most excruciatingly, for a shame-based culture, he's alone. Almost everyone has withdrawn from him. And then there's God the Father, in whose word, Deuteronomy 21.23, says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. It's a supremely lonely scene that Jesus is in. It's painful too. There are nail holes in his wrists, which are under the pressure of his body hanging on the cross. Apparently some people were on their crosses so long that they died of sepsis, of blood poisoning from infections caused by the nails. Breathing would have been difficult because you're there like this. You'd never probably be able to properly relax your diaphragm. And the pain, they say, just kept getting worse and worse. And you'd be thirsty, incredibly thirsty. And this horrific place, Jesus reaches out to his Father. And interestingly, when you think about what he says, he does not pray for his suffering and his agony to end. He doesn't pray for a quick death. He doesn't pray for the perseverance or the strength or whatever to be able to carry on. He doesn't pray for himself at all. No. He prays for his Roman oppressors, for those who are casually playing dice for his stuff, through to the temple cleric sneering at him and who are clearly enjoying his pain and his humiliation. And then he doesn't pray that they would grasp the enormity of what they're doing to him as a man. He doesn't pray that they would see the horrific thing that they are doing to him as the divine son of God who they claim to worship. He doesn't even pray that they would change. No. Instead, he prays that God, his father, would forgive them. Not in response to their confession, not because they've grasped what they are doing, not because they've asked for it, because they haven't done any of those things. 
He asked God to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's puzzling. When I was at school, um, we were having a special dinner to celebrate the end of the year in our boarding house. The next day was the final of the senior house rugby championships and we were playing in that, which was a huge deal in a real rugby head school. And we had an Auckland rep rugby player, was the after dinner speaker, and he said to us, boys, when you get out on that field tomorrow, look your opposition in the eyes and make sure you get your retaliation in first. Think about that. Get your retaliation in first. This is what Jesus asks his Father. Get your forgiveness in first before any confession or request for it or awareness of the need of it. Jesus had taught his followers to love their enemies and pray for those that oppress them. And here he is, at the lowest point of his life, doing just that. His first word on the cross was in prayer to his Father for the sake of his willing executioners. Now, in the New Zealand court system, around about 85% of people who are charged with an offence plead guilty. So if you're a criminal defence lawyer, most of what you're doing is standing up and saying variations on this theme. Your Honour, Phil is very sorry for all that he has done that brought him here today. He was in a bad place at the time of the offending because he'd recently lost his job and was suffering depression, for which he's now being treated. He had a quite appalling young adulthood, details of which are in the pre-sentencing report in front of you, sir. One consequence of which is that he has trouble controlling his anger. Therefore, I respectfully submit that he received a suspended one-year sentence that he'd be required to attend an approved drug and alcohol program and anger management classes. Thank you, sir. Imagine doing that 10 times a day and 20 times on a Friday. And that's what being a criminal lawyer is like. It sounds like Jesus is saying, forgive them, Father, because they're simply acting out of their ignorance. And if you think about it, this isn't how we approach forgiveness amongst ourselves. And I thought about this. You know, if, if a married woman in this congregation came to me to say that her husband beat her, I wouldn't say, look, um, he doesn't really get what he's doing to you. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Just, just forgive him and get on with it. No, I'd want her to be safe as the first and last and all in between priority. And for him to truly and profoundly show that he'd understood what harm he'd done, the trust he'd broken, before any talk of forgiveness would take place. And if it did, it would be at her initiative. I recall in Auckland a few years ago, a Christian man on his way home interrupted a guy mugging a young woman in an alley. He intervened and for his trouble got stabbed, and later that night he died. 
The next day, there's this great manhunt to try to find this person. And his wife publicly said that she had forgiven his slayer. And when I heard that, I winced. Because it seemed way too early to me to be saying something like that. She was probably still in shock when she said it. Did her husband's killer have any inkling in what he'd done? Well, who knew? Here at Calvary, Jesus is asking the Father to forgive his killers while he is being killed by them. And they're either oblivious or they're mocking him. It's scandalous. For us, forgiveness is sort of allows us to let go of the person that hurt us and the hold they have over us and just leave them to the justice of God. But Jesus here is wanting to draw closer to his killers, to embrace them, while he at the same time is in profound physical, psychic and spiritual pain caused by them. The nature of God the Father, Son and Spirit is clearly to forgive. But as I've sat with this passage this week and these thoughts, the question that arises for me is, who here is any different, really any different from the Roman soldiers or the Jewish authorities in that scene? Did we understand what we were doing when we lived lives without the Lord? Sin, the, the attitude of living our own life in our own terms, on our own terms, in defiance of God, or at least without reference to him, corrupts us. It blinds us to the truth. It distorts our perspective. I, I thought I was basically an honest person before becoming a Christian, and then I was in for a rude shock. Once forgiven, I could see that I was a liar when it suited me, a thief in the right circumstances, and a bully when challenged. The Lord led me to confess to those that I'd wronged, and in that journey I was changed for the better. The forgiveness door over there, that Pete's designed for us, opens from the other side, not from our side. I am still 40 years later learning how, just how deep sin runs in me. Yeah, I'm capable of, in the power and leading of God's Spirit, to do good, and I rejoice in that. But every good motive has, that I can assemble has got a bit of a taint to it. It's got a sinful need or a selfish need hanging off it. I couldn't have made a good choice to follow the Lord. At best, he called and I acquiesced, I, I caved in. One of my favourite stories, which some of you will recognise, because I think I've told it a couple of times, but again and again, was when a pastor mate of mine was guest preaching down south. At the end of the service, he felt the small hand on his shoulder, gloved hand, he said. So he turned around, and there was this tearful, older woman who asked him if he would go with her to a quiet place to hear her confession. He was intrigued. 
And so, of course, he said yes. Then she opened up to him. Sir, my husband of 60-odd years died not long ago, about nine months ago. And I am feel so sorry that I am thinking about him and missing him more than I am thinking about the Lord. Now he went to say, don't worry, it's okay. But he stopped himself. Because he realized that in that moment, he was hearing the confession of a great saint, a very great saint, who was far more aware and sensitive to her own sin than he was to his. Her heightened awareness was the fruit of a long walk in the forgiveness of God. And this is one, and I think a very important aspect of what spiritual maturity looks like, that awareness. We gather here this morning to worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose nature is to scandalously forgive. If he could forgive those who killed his only begotten son, then there is room for you, no matter who you are or what you have done or how bad you think you are. Whether you've believed and trusted him in the past or not, draw near to those loving and forgiving arms. Thank you for your kind attention. I was going to say, would the musicians come up? But would the musician and singers come up? So please stand for our final song. Uh, it's been a real focus.